In 1916, the precocious 17-year-old Vladimir Nabokov lived comfortably on his family's estate in St. Petersburg, Russia, where he led an idyllic life collecting butterflies and writing. He was even about to have his first collection of poems published. Then came one of those life events that mixed luck and misfortune, of the sort that always somehow appear at the heart of psychic occurrences. His rich uncle Vasily died, leaving the young writer his fortune and his estate. Although minus an uncle, the young Nabokov seemed set for life, pursuing his hobbies with nary a care. But his new prosperity proved short-lived. The revolutionary fervor that engulfed Russia the following October overthrew the old class hierarchy. Nabokov lost his estate and wealth, and his family had to flee the country. It was during this time of tumult that Nabokov had a dream. His dead uncle Vasily appeared to him and announced enigmatically, I shall come back to you as Harry and Kurkin. In the dream, Nabokov thought that the names represented a pair of circus performers. It was absurd, senseless at the time, like most dreams are. Fast forward to 1959. The 60-year-old emigre novelist and butterfly expert was now living in Ithaca, New York, where his friend Morris Bishop had landed him a teaching position at Cornell. Life magazine wanted to do a story on Nabokov because of the popularity of his 1955 novel, Lolita, and he was lunching with his wife and the reporters at his home when he received a call from Bishop, who eagerly asked him if he'd read that day's New York Times. He hadn't, so his friend read the news story to him over the phone. Harris Kubrick Pictures, he said, Stanley Kubrick's production company, had just purchased the film rights to Lolita for a large sum, $150,000. When the contract arrived in the mail, Nabokov was pleased to find himself, for the first time since his youth, a rich man. He also remembered his, his uncle Vasily's crazy dream promise that his wealthy benefactor would return to him as circus performers, Harry and Kirkin. The V in Kurvruk, which means somersault in Russian, would be B in English, though something like Kubrick. Harry and Kirkin from the circus world of Hollywood had indeed come at last to restore Vladimir Nabokov's lost fortune. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and you're listening to 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Monday, November 5th, 2018, and today for 42 Minutes, we're going to radically change paradigms and potentially pull the rug from both Jung and our little enterprise here at thesyncbook.com. And we'll do so with Eric Wargo, author of the recent book, Time Loops. Time is not what you think it is. Neither are you. Welcome to a world where participants in psychology experiments to respond to pictures they haven't seen yet. Where physicists influence the past behavior of a light beam by measuring its photons now. And where dreamers and writers literally remember their future. This landmark study explores the principles that allows the future to affect the present and the present to affect the past without causing paradox. It also deconstructs the powerful taboos that, for centuries, have mainstream science from taking phenomena like retrocausation and precognition seriously. 
We are four-dimensional creatures, and sometimes we are even caught in time loops, self-fulfilling prophecies where effects become their own causes. According to Jeffrey Kripal, frequent guest of this program, I consider time loops to be the most significant intellectual work on a paranormal topic in the last 50 years. Not only does Wargo show us how strong the evidence for precognition really is, already a major accomplishment, he gives us scientific, psychological, and interpretive tools for thinking about these phenomena in strikingly original ways. Eric Wargo has a PhD in anthropology from Emory University and works as a science writer and editor in Washington, D.C. In his spare time, he writes about science fiction, consciousness, and the paranormal at his popular blog, The Night Shirt. Time Loops is his first book, and more information about it and him can be found at thenightshirt.com. Welcome to the program, Eric. How are you today? I'm awesome. It's awesome to be here. Thank you. Excellent. So, this is an amazing book, and it really kind of did a number on me. Um, and I alluded <laughs> to that in the introduction because for the for the, the past ten years or so, I've been studying synchronicity, and I think your book is beginning to potentially think about what Jung and Freud were looking at from a different angle. Is what it felt like to me. Does that does that feel right to you, or how does that sound? Yeah, very much. You know, what's in the book uh, on Jung? Uh, you know, people associate, of course, synchronicity with Jung because he coined the term, and and while he was not the first researcher to study and think seriously about meaningful coincidence you know he was really the the one who put it on the map by naming it you know that it really helps to have that name synchronicity and you know in the book i i i I think i sort of deconstruct (laughs) uh some of the assumptions that went into that term but it's still a really good term you know it's like i can't i can't go a day without (laughs) using the term synchronicity even though i think that that uh really what's going on uh is is something quite different than what he proposed and in fact jung i mean i i went down the rabbit hole with jung i mean it wound up only one chapter in the book, but uh, I wound up cutting about three chapters that that just were too tangential. But uh, yeah, he's an interesting interesting figure in the study of of synchronicity, obviously, and the study of the paranormal generally. Well, so let's start with Minkowski's block universe because I think this is kind of like a concept that I really needed to grok to kind of make my way through mm-hmm. your book. What is who is Minkowski and what is the block universe? Minkowski was Einstein's math teacher. And after Einstein published his special theory of relativity um, uh, in the early years of the century, uh, his uh, teacher Minkowski sort of uh, started thinking in a big way about what Einstein had proposed. And it was Minkowski who came up with the term space-time uh, as, a continu- you know, as a continuum, as this kind of unified thing. Um, and of course, uh, Einstein's general theory went on to show that matter curves space and you can't think of space really uh, without thinking about time as well as a dimension. And so Minkowski sort of conceptualized the physical universe as a four-dimensional um, construct. Like, so you, you, you imagine, now we can't think in four dimensions. This is the problem. And this is the, this is the huge problem in thinking about anything like uh, precognition or 
you know, backwards causation. And it's even a problem for thinking about just causality in the forward direction. You know, it took, it took humans a long time to, to be able to kind of conceptualize these things. And it helps to have visual mental models. And what he proposed, what Minkowski proposed was thinking about, you know, uh, just think of a, of a big block. And because we can't think of four dimensions, let's just get rid of one of the space dimensions and just think of space as two-dimensional. And then the third dimension of that block is time. And so everything moving through time, you know, every object in the universe is really a line. It's really kind of a worm snaking its way through the, the block, uh, this block universe. And whatever we experience in the present moment is a cross-section of that worm or that, you know, that, that you know, every object has a, what he called a world line. And that line sort of snakes its way through the glass block or through the block. Uh, and so uh, thinking of the universe this way as, as this block uh, is really kind of necessary for getting your head around these concepts like precognition. And so it seems like a figure that I wasn't aware of, but at this point seems like I don't know how I'm not aware of J.W. Dunn and his ideas mm-hmm. of seriality and how that influenced a lot of the thinkers that went on to, you know, influence the the folks that I, you know, I am familiar with. Could you did did Dunn build upon Minkowski's block university or are these just simultaneous kind of developments? No. Very much he built on it. He, uh, he was very inspired. He would, this, J.W. Dunn was an aeronautical engineer, you know, one of the first aeronautical engineers. I mean, he was, he was there from the beginning. I mean, from uh, the very earliest biplanes. And he was, you know, he was, uh, in fact, he was experimenting with monoplanes and like early flying wing designs that were, you know, in the very early years of aviation. But he also experienced a lot of precognitive dreams. And this, you know, really led him to apply his engineer's intellect uh, to the problem of time and consciousness and what, you know, what is the relationship there? And he was very, you know, well-read and he was reading these guys. He was reading Einstein and Minkowski and Eddington, Arthur Eddington and and other big names. And so he was sort of putting this all together into a sort of a theory of, of how, how consciousness, uh, particularly when we're asleep can sort of kind of fly free of the body and, and travel forward and backward along, you know, along our, what he called the brain line. You know, your, your brain is a, you know, you can think of it as a, as a worm going through the glass block and it's, and and he would imagine, you know, your consciousness sort of uh, traversing that in in and and sort of coming, you know, the, the, well, the term that Kurt Vonnegut later used was coming unstuck in time. Well, that's sort of apply. That's sort of what J.W. Dunn was theorizing back in the 1920s, based on his precognitive dream experiences. It feels like. A lot, I don't know that I could say everyone, but a lot of people are aware of that strange, and the word we would use is synchronicity, mm-hmm. because that's the word that we just, the strange synchronicity of the writer by the name Morgan, who kind of somehow puts into fiction this idea of the Titanic event happening before it happens. And sure. it's it seems like there's a couple concepts here that we kind of have to, suss out a little bit and one is this idea of just straight precognition which is you know something like uh what dunn was looking at precognitive dreams 
But then mm-hmm. also what you're talking about, which is even weirder, is this idea of time loops. Could you talk about both a little bit? Yeah, well, the you know, it's without going into great detail, and we only have 42 minutes, so we, we can't, we can only do so much. But, you know, precognition is sort of, as far as I'm concerned, predicated on that block universe model, uh, in which there is a future, in a, which in some sense already exists. And it's able to act back on the present, and the present acts back on the past. And there's this, uh, and this is a whole sort of domain in quantum physics, this idea of retro causation, causation happening in reverse. And I, I argue in this book, and it's not a necessarily a, a, a mainstream argument, even among people who write about this topic of precognition, but I argue that precognition is predicated on that, that phenomenon of retro causation. Now, time loops, the, the, the added dimension I'm giving to it is that in a world where there's retro causation, it sort of means that information that travels back to the past is going to have an influence then on events happening in the usual forward in time direction. And, uh, and in a block universe, there's no paradox. There's no changing your future. Uh, so a, a precognitive experience is always going to be it's always going to be self-fulfilling. So essentially all prophecies are self-fulfilling in a block universe like Minkowski proposed. And this is the difficulty. This is the real conceptual challenge that I think has kept uh, generations of people from really confronting the reality of precognition and thinking carefully about it because we don't like, we, it sound, it feels like, a paradox or it feels wrong. Uh, it feels like a violation of some principle to imagine that, that effects can be their own causes, um, in this kind of looping time looping circular way. But in fact, it's what it's right there in the equations governing, uh, governing particles in quantum physics. I mean, there's physicists are totally fine with this idea and uh, and I think what I've done in my book is really sort of zoom in on uh, a lot of very famous cases of precognition in, in literature and in dreams and in uh, various domains and show that they fulfill this expectation that, that precognition always it has kind of a self-fulfilling character to it. And one of the... In very interesting uh, kind of uh, results of that is that we don't foresee the future in any kind of clear way. It's always oblique or and in dreams symbolic. And, you know, you can't have a, a premonition, say, of, of an event that you could, you know, consciously... Uh, avoid or or prevent somehow this this notion of the grandfather paradox that always people always raise when we when we talk about time and time loops and this possibility of of informational time travel which is what retro causation really is uh, and what precognition really is it it 
uh, people always think, well, you know, you know, they think of the grandfather paradox, you know, going back in time and killing your grandfather and preventing you from being born, which would prevent you from going back in time. You know, it's like this paradoxical situation that never happens. We can, we can, we can totally throw that idea out. Um, in the, in the block universe of Minkowski, uh, there are no paradoxes like that, you know, but what that means though, is that precognition and any kind of retro causation has this very oblique, uh, an indirect manifestation. And that's what I find so interesting about the topic. And it's really why I spent a lot of the book, actually, you know, three chapters of the book talking about Sigmund Freud, because all people don't associate him with parapsychology or, or the occult or things like that. But, but his whole theory of the unconscious and how dreams work and how symptoms work in, in you know, neurotic symptoms and this kind of sub- symbolic obliquity of of our of human behavior it matches perfectly how information from the future would have to influence us and that's why one of the big arguments in my book is that everything that we've always called the unconscious is really just consciousness displaced in time it's this influence of the future on our present behavior or on our dreams or on our you know, artworks or, you know, there are all kinds of ways that, that the future can influence us and our behavior. And they've all, they were all what Freud was studying, thinking that it was this, this domain of repressed stuff from our past. I think it's really all stuff from our future. Which, right, you allude to, like, the quantum computer is actually long-lived folks, like uh, there's this correlation between smart people and people who live a long time, and that potentially has to do with the fact that they're tapping into their longevity's futures computation power, whereas someone who doesn't live as long would have less uh, precognition, precognitive abilities, and so would not necessarily be as intelligent. Which is kind of mind blowing. Well, that's kind of a that's a that's kind of one of the more far out speculations of the book. I mean, I don't have direct evidence of that, but it's uh it's 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 something that would flow from the idea that I talk about in part two of my book that the brain is really uh, I use the science fiction metaphor of a tesseract. It's a it's a, a sort of a, a a conduit of information traveling both directions through time, and. Uh, and there are reasons to believe from quantum biology and from recent re- work in quantum computing that uh, that quantum computers may really be a a kind of way of harnessing this timelessness uh, and and may be able to to reach into into their futures and and you know bring information from the future into the past as well as information from the past into the future and if the brain is indeed such a device it's probably much more complex than that it's it's, it's probably a combination of of quantum and classical computation but uh it's if it's at all reaching into its future then yes uh, a long lived individual would potentially have more computing power in their brain. <laughs> so it's a, you know, it's a speculation, but uh, it's something worth thinking about. And there are some, some suggestive 
you know, small studies in parapsychology that do suggest something like that. Um, I'll mention Daryl Bem is the most sort of famous person, at least in, in recent years, who's done, you know, really mind-blowing experiments uh, with students at Cornell University, you know, showing that, that, you know, like your performance on a test can be influenced by what you are exposed to after the test. I mean, I mean, just mind blowing, you know, reversals of causation like that. And his studies have really, uh, they've been replicated. Well, uh, it's mind blowing stuff that mainstream science just, of course, just ignores because it can't deal with these ideas yet. But I think, you know, give it a couple decades, I think people are going to be forced to, to deal with it. Of course, this, like, you have you run head on into this idea of, like, fatalism, that whole concept of then what are we? If, if I mean, so mm -hmm. free will definitely becomes, so if, if everything is predetermined, you know, so, like, that's the thing. Mm-hmm from a lot of these dreams where they become self-fulfilling prophecies. They're responding to this dream and trying to avoid this, whatever it is, you know, that happens to them. And it's in the response that the thing actually happens to them. That, you know, that's, the, that's right. the, the time loop, you know, they are somehow responding to this future event that hasn't happened. That's causing them to behave a certain way. Mm -hmm. that's <laughs> like creating the, the event. And it's precisely because they're misunderstanding their dream or they're misunderstanding what that event might be that they're then fulfilling it. And this is why, hence, hence my interest in Freud, because this is exactly what Freud keyed in on as sort of the key to human nature is this sort of, this sort of ignorance, this kind of self-ignorance, this kind of ironic self-ignorance that produces these situations in our lives. Um, and so why, that's why I think that his work is so incredibly relevant to, uh, to, yeah, but to the study of, of self-fulfilling prophecies, just like you mentioned, you know. But you end up kind of doing a doozy to both Jung and Freud because they both had this kind of eureka moment where there's, and it has, they both, you know, were deeply connected to dream work and so they both have these these kind of aha eureka moments where there's a dream at the that the heart of what their philosophy represents and then you go back and look at the dream and then deconstruct it in such a way that not it doesn't speak to the moment in their philosophy but actually speaks to their life and what is what is out in the future yeah yeah, no, that's what makes that's what makes Freud so freaking fascinating. <laughs> you know, when when you want to study this stuff, because you know uh, he, you know, in his own life, you know, his his you know he, he took this this old this old myth, you know, Oedipus, and and made it the sort of the sort of the the master key of human nature in his theory. Now, Oedipus is a story about about a guy who was trying to evade prophecies and wound up fulfilling them in the process of evading them. And, but Freud ignored that whole dimension of the story and instead made it all about incest. Okay. So we all understand the Oedipus complex is, you know, we all want to have sex with our mother and that, that, that stuff. Well, you know, and in fact, in Freud's own life, he was replicating Oedipus's story. I mean, he was, he was, you know, focusing on this kind of, this kind of sexual 
you know, these kind of sexual entanglements in the family and, and blah, blah, blah. And he was resolutely ignoring the idea of prophecy and precognition and the idea that the future influences us. And yet his most famous dream, the dream that sort of gave him what he thought was the key to his whole theory, essentially, turned out to precognize the illness that took his life three decades later. I mean, uncannily. And this is not my own discovery. I mean, this is, this has been written about in less detail before, but I, I sort of, uh, sort of unpacked this dream and, and, you know, show just how astonishingly his own life kind of proves this theory uh, of, of, of precognition and, and the idea that the unconscious is really, you know, consciousness displaced in time. And it's not about the past. It's not about our past that's sort of haunting us, you know, uh, but it's about our future that we really can't see yet because it's not the future yet, but it's still influencing us. So it's really, um, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. I mean, so like that point alone really kind of was like, <laughs> like a noodle baker for me that you could develop what amounts to uh, like quirk life? Uh, what do you call those? Where you have like a fear of heights or different things like that? Phobias. Yeah, phobias mm -hmm. arising out of nowhere, and you're trying to. And what we attribute things to are like past life. So I must have. But you know, mm -hmm. for, you, maybe it's future trauma that you're <laughs> reacting to. It's not past yeah. trauma. Yeah. Well. Exactly. And that's what, and you mentioned Morgan Robertson, the guy who wrote the story about the Titan. Well, he wrote a story about an ocean liner called the Titan, which hits an, uh, an iceberg in April and, and, and goes down and everyone dies because there aren't enough lifeboats. And this is 14 years before the Titanic sinks exactly the same way. And, and, you know, this is a, a classic case in, you know, the sort of study of precognition in literature, you know, sort of the most there are actually, you know, a million cases like that, but this is just the most famous. And uh, and this is what I argue is really going on with Morgan Robertson. I mean, there was this this sort of event, this big event ahead of him in time, but because we can't understand that, or we can't even fathom that idea, you know, it's it 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 becomes this neurosis, and it and it drives him to alcoholism and and so forth, and 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 so he's sort of living as though this event already happened. And it's essentially, you know, by the, the, you know, time, you know, he died just like two or three years, three years, I think after the Titanic uh, disaster. And he was, you know, uh, by that time, very far gone with, you know, his alcohol addiction and, and probably other health problems as a result of it. But yeah. And I think, and, and of course, Phil, Philip K. Dick is the most, you know, famously precognitive writer. And I think he fits the same pattern of someone who's, you know, he was really just kind of re responding. He, his symptoms came from his future, not from his past. Uh, but, you know, we have no way of understanding that. It's, it's so, that's so mind, you know, mind twisting for anybody, you know, like I've been dealing with it. I've been dealing with this stuff for, you know, years now and trying to wrap my head around it. And it still just boggles my mind. It's just, it's very hard to think, you know, it's just really, uh, it's very, we're not, we're not cut out. We're not meant to be understanding this stuff. So it feels almost like forbidden knowledge in a way. It does. But as, as you say, so for a long time, we've attributed someone with precognitive abilities as kind of like a, 
a superhero or you know something an aberration but mm-hmm. your thesis you end up at a place where perhaps everyone has precognitive abilities and that the way to actually get in touch with this would be to keep a dream journal. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's not only universal. I, mean, I think we're all precognitive creatures. Uh, we're all precogs. But I think that it's, I really think that it's basic not only to cognition, you know, to the functioning of, of you know, it's basic to our mind. I think it's basic to life itself. I mean, I think there's, uh, there's a lot of reason to believe that, that sort of growing reason to believe that quantum mechanics may be the explanation for, you know, what caused the emergence of life uh, out of lifeless matter. And if uh, the interpretation of quantum mechanics that I adopt in this book, and it's a growing interpretation, is right, it's retrocausation that's really the, at the heart of quantum entanglement and all these spooky phenomena going on in the quantum world. So life is really kind of a way of scaling that up and capitalizing on this ability of sort of quantum systems to be influenced by their futures instead of their pasts. And so that may be at the very heart of what makes a living thing. And, you know, nervous systems just sort of scale it up one, take it one further level. Uh, But yeah, we're all precognitive and, and our culture has found all kinds of ways to squelch any awareness of that. But yeah, pay attention to your dreams, pay attention to your synchronicities, pay attention to your, you know, intuition into, you know, intuition is just precognition by another name and, you know, art, you know, you know, creativity is precognitive, I, I believe very strongly. So whatever you do that you're, that, you know, that is your sort of uh, creative outlet, whatever that may be in your work or in your, you know, uh, hobbies or whatever, that's where your that's where your precognition manifests most powerfully. Hmm. So, I mean, so one methodology that frequently happens in a lot of the people that you find is that this ability doesn't have to do with them tapping into some source outside themselves. It's fully in their own being somehow, right? So like this yeah. I, this idea of uh, a larger... So I think maybe at the very beginning of the book, you talk a little bit about like the this idea of the the self with a small s and a capital S self where we could tap into some kind of greater whole but it it definitely seems like towards the end of the book you you arrive at more of a place where it's it's an individual's journey with their own uh timeline so to speak so they're not they're not seeing events happen they're seeing them responding to events in their own lifetime so oftentimes i think there was that the story of the woman who's recounting something basically she's seeing on social media she's not there but she's seeing something you know and so it's mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. that that in itself is really interesting because of how it does encapsulate things in in the individuals themselves with the precognitive ability yeah absolutely i believe that this really is all about our own biography and i think 
uh, in fact, doing this research over the past few years has really, it, it, I found that an effect on, it had on me was to really make me really interested in people's biographies. You know, I've been reading tons of biographies, artists' biographies, and, and, and it just, uh, it, it, because you realize that, that the, this, these phenomena are about our own lives and they really show us these hidden connections in our own lives. Uh, and you know, we can't understand our, for instance, our dreams, you know, you can't understand the dream you had the night last night, you know, until sometime in the future when, you know, a series of events or this kind of very, uh, unsettling or, or profound train of thought occurs to you because of some event. And like you really think back and realize, Oh my God, this is what that dream was about. And the thing is, sometimes, you know, often, you know, nine times out of 10, it's within the next few days, you know, that, that our dreams sort of focus on events in the next few days. But there are these, there are exceptions, you know, they like in the case of the Harry and Kuvirkin dream that, that Nabokov had, you know, that was a dream like three or four decades in the future, in his future. And there are so many examples like that. Like the example of Freud that we talked about, that too was a few decades in his future. I, in my, in my postscript, I talk about a dream I had that was 18 years old when it, when it finally coalesced in an event. It was like, oh my God, it was just like, you know, it was uncanny how, you know, this dream had precognized this kind of significant turning point in my, in my writing of this book, in fact. And so, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you, these precognition is about our own biography. It's our own, it's about our own our own self. And in a way, that's how I sort of come to think of the soul really as, as kind of this, this continuity of ourself from birth to death, you know? Um, and, and, uh, it's, yeah, it makes you really interested in the individual life. Yes. It's, it's fascinating because it does actually eliminate some of the woo woo. I don't think it, it does all because there is still something about, uh, the connections you feel with some people and not others. And then even, mm -hmm. you know, the, the thought that I have is uh, with the idea of reincarnation, where we have these strong feelings of place or time or connection to things that precede us by, you know, hundreds of years and things. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems like that's still pretty untouched by this maybe but definitely well I mean, this, I, i'm not trying to i'm not trying to explain away all, all paranormal phenomena no or, no or, but all it, spiritual phenomena by any means yeah but there is something kind of materialist about it i guess is the thing there is something it 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 kind of it it challenges science but then also challenges uh, people in the in the paranormal type as far as explanations or just different um, mental things that you have to do to make sense of it, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm in this kind of funny place where I think I'm kind of uh, with this, with my, this idea, it's kind of offending. <laughs> it's offending everybody. Cause it's, it's a, you know, it's, it's obviously a, you know, materialists are not going to listen to it at all. You know, your standard uh, uh, materialist, people in the sciences for instance but uh but yeah i'm 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 asking people uh in sort of the paranormal world and parapsychology to to sort of 
think again about these models that just propose that that it's all about you know consciousness is this kind of universal field in the in the universe and whatever i don't think those models i don't find those models very persuasive or explanatory when it comes to these phenomena i think there's something you know i think that i really do think that precognition will have a you know a physical explanation uh but of course physical in a much broader sense than we're used to thinking about it i i think that 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 if you look at quantum physics right now it's like you know it, that's a physical theory but it's you know it's mind-blowing in terms of what what it uh, what it implies uh for the nature of reality and so you know so yeah i'm a in some ways i am a materialist but in this kind of enlarged <laughs> in this large in, in this enlarged sense uh that you know i think that that it's kind of I'm taking kind of a middle path between <laughs> between the materialists and the anti-materialists these days. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, uh, my book might turn out to be pretty unpopular because of that. <laughs> we'll see. Well, uh, I can tell you that I, I understand quantum physics on a strictly metaphor level. I was listening to a book <laughs> recently, and it's like when they started digging into the nuts and bolts of it, it's like, oh, whoa, this is. I think I think you were, yeah. and, and and then I think a lot of scientists feel that way. They just like don't think about it. Just do the computations, right, right. But as we begin to wrap up, usually about this time, I'm I'm asking folks, well, what are you what are you going to work on next, or what are you working on next? I mean, for you, the interesting thing is you've been keeping these dream journals for so long. Are you going back and looking at those with fresh eyes and? I mean, so like, what do we do with this information? Yeah. Is it a, it's one of acceptance? You know, it's like, so Freud did not, he, you know, is it the Rilke poem? You must change your life, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> do, do you know that one? I mean, yeah. so like, how do we take this data that we're getting and do something with it? Or can we do anything with it? Do we just accept yeah. ex acceptance? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's a really fascinating question. And like, you know, when you first start, when you first go down the path of studying psychic phenomena, well, you know, you have this sort of superhero image that's like, oh, I'm going to develop some new power or whatever. And for me, it's not been about that at all. Ultimately, it's turned out to be this kind of fascinating exploration of myself, <laughs> you know, in and it's been a kind of a spiritual uh, exploration, too, because I mean, there's something, you know, there's a real gnosis in discovering in seeing yourself across time like in a dream uh or or some precognitive experience and it just and it really gives you this profound and in some ways unsettling and in some ways very exciting thrill to you know to realize that that oh my god we are four-dimensional creatures and, the, and it is kind of a block universe and like you know there, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh it's a very unsettling path um, but it's fascinating. And yeah, I have been going through my, my old dream journals and, and, and revisiting them. And I found a lot of amazing things. <laughs> I won't, you know, I don't have time to go into them, but, but yeah, I do highly recommend people, you know, it's just, it's the usual, it's the usual stuff, you know, you keep a dream journal, you know, record your synchronicities, you know, record your, uh, your, certainly your paranormal experiences and your, your, um, uh, you know, and keep doing your art, keep doing whatever. Cause it's like, it's like I said before, it's in your, 
whenever you're engaged with the unconscious, you know, whatever that means, that's when you're tapping into to your future in some mysterious way. And uh, I can only say that it's very exciting to then wait and find out the mysterious ways that your unconscious, you know, really was tapped into your future. And it just takes sort of have, opening your eyes to this possibility, then you can start to notice uh, how this works in your own life. But the best way to do things, you really do need to start writing things down, <laughs> keeping notes on your thoughts and your, your experiences and your dreams and uh, your synchronicities is, is very important. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. This was really fun. You bet. You've been listening to Eric Wargo on 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and thesyncbook.com. Check out his website at thenightshirt.com. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or just subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others as currently all the SyncBook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine to help you find what you need. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. If compelled, click on the support link at the bottom of the homepage. Thanks so much. And we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. Which reminds me of 12 Monkeys. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Come on, come on.
Solo. 